at the end, it's a question of how it's the entrepreneurial question of how you deal with risk and mm. can you minimize your risk exposure? Can you yeah. find out what the limitations is? It, I mean, that's the basic job of every consultant and every designer. If he looks at business questions, what okay. are the risk questions behind it? Now, doing a Michelin restaurant in itself is a very risky business. Hello and welcome to Bringing Design Closer on This Is HCD. Our goal is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organizations to become more human-centered in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. I'm Jerry Scullion. I'm the founder of This Is HCD. I'm a designer, educator, design coach and podcaster based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Now, earlier this year, I attended a conference in Nuremberg called Teaming With AI, run by my good friends Marcus Edgar Hormez, Adam Lawrence from Workplay Experience, and also today's guest, Florian Bailey. Now, the day before the event, myself and Florian spent some time together and hung out and explored the office where he was based. In passing, Florian mentioned that he was also co-founder of Etz, a two-star Michelin restaurant. Now, I actually thought he was joking, but no, one of his businesses was the most incredible restaurant, Etz. And the reason why I thought he was joking was I watched those documentaries just on how demanding these types of restaurants and businesses can be. And I knew Florian was already super busy with his user-centered strategy business and Nuremberg Festival as well that he's really, really involved with. In the next day at the event, Etz provided all the food. Now, the food was extremely special, but that wasn't the bit that I was most interested in. I was interested in the journey that Florian and his co-founder went on to get to this point. I mentioned that I'd walked around the office space with Florian before. Well, this is the same space that Marcus and Adam and Mark also use for their amazing This Is Service Design doing workshops from time to time. But it's also the same space that Florian used to test the prototype for the restaurant. So where was the line of visibility? Where was the line of interaction? And I wanted to drill a little deeper into these areas and learn more about that journey. What worked, what didn't work, etc. So if you're looking for an awesome example of a world-class business that utilizes service design methods, look no further. Now I work in these episodes as a labor of love and I love sharing the work of others and I know many of you enjoy it too. So I see all those wonderful reviews on Spotify and Google. And really, if you want to help me and this is 8CD, maybe you might consider becoming a patron. It's just under two euros a month. You get a premium feed with no ads. It helps me meet the cost of producing everything. So we're still miles away from doing that. So check more at thisis8cd.com. But anyway, let's jump straight into this episode. Florian Bailey, I'm delighted to have you here on the podcast. Um, a very warm welcome. Maybe start off, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and where you're from. I'm from Nuremberg and uh, I do a lot of things. It's complicated. You do. You do. My LinkedIn biography says I'm a designer by, by trade and craft, yeah. but uh, I think I'm doing a lot of different things at the same time. A Michelin star restaurant, which is yeah. the thing you found most attractive, understandably. Oh, well, uh, apart, apart from your wonderful hairstyle and the <laughs> event that we connected with through Marcus and Adam uh, yeah. teaming, with AI, teaming with AI. But would you say entrepreneur? Is that a phrase that you um, repel or is it a, a word you kind of find yourself? Um, it's, I, I'm fine with it. And it's not my 
when we had the event where you also joined the teaming with AI event, there were groups of people and yeah. there was an entrepreneur group. Who was there? Yeah, there were people who weren't willing to or weren't sure what they actually do in their job. And when you when you looked at them and talked to them later, these were all entrepreneurs and CEOs from companies and something. something. CEO on their own. Yeah. And so, and I joined the innovation and designers group. So I see myself yeah. more of, as, an, as a designer and more as somebody working on innovation. Yeah. Um, in reality, I'm an entrepreneur because I like to do it all. <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah. We were speaking earlier there and also in Nuremberg as well, we were talking a little bit about it's the restaurant, which we're, we're going to talk a little bit about more about because how it all came about, um, I'm really interested in. And also mm -hmm. the service design methodologies. Um, Marcus was very proud when he told me that they used cardboard to prototype uh, the space. <laughs> cardboard, Jerry. And I was like, okay, brilliant. Okay. You know, no, you're <laughs> cardboard. I was like, okay, I get it. Okay, I get it. It was a prototype first. So um, what I want to know a little bit more about is how you came about working as a designer. Uh, you, you said you identify as an innovation uh, person and a designer. How did you make that first leap into something that might be seen as a an extension or a little bit of a step away from what might be seen as conventional or accepted for a designer to do like your first business that was outside of that realm um i think the first business so so we started as a i was freelance for a long time and yeah. did a lot of design consulting mm -hmm. and mostly on digital products yeah and then there came a shift when we started to more and more events Mm. Uh, in the regional, so regional events about digitalization, about um, design, about everything that came up. And sometimes I just did events because I didn't want to travel to Berlin or fly mm. somewhere else internationally. When you say so, events, you mean like conferences and stuff? Yeah, I went to a lot yeah. of events and conferences. And then we just saw communities around here where we said, wow, the, this is uh, actually a uh, globally relevant community like uh, we have adidas here puma and, yeah. and a lot of research institutes and health and technology so why don't they meet actually up why is there no meetup for them and i wasn't actually part of these communities but then i just started a meetup for them just because i thought that would will be interesting and interesting insights yeah. and then this meetup started and started going and more and more people came and I started another meetup and another meetup for another community. And so suddenly we had like, I think 10, 12 different events going on in the wow. area and with different communities and we shared these events. So it was like a crowdsourced events and mm. somebody took over for every event. And then we came up with the idea, well, let's do a little festival for the region and put all the events in one week yeah and just in an open crowdsourced way so not in a you know we are doing a festival and we have all the events like let's more build a brand be more visible for all the events build visibility for the events but don't let's not control it yeah and 
that's when we started the festival in the region. So it was a Nuremberg Digital Festival. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the first business where I went outside of my usual areas. And it's a very interesting experience because it's so it's so different to other festivals or other event types because it's completely crowdsourced. Yeah. We, we never know what's going to happen. And there's now a professional team managing it. It's five people or six people. It's still a small business, but it has yeah. a lot of, it's an impact business. And you can, we have 400 events uh, in some years. And it's still like impressive. 1,000 organizations and companies that somehow participate as speakers, making their own events, partnering with other organizations to yeah. make an event. So what you're building is like a huge, enormous networking cluster and through the whole society. And then you have local theaters doing something with IT companies and, and you can watch how new networks appear and new ways how people connect. And some groups. And subgroups, and it's very interesting because you you have no control, so it's not it's, it's not much of a business that can scale in a classical sense because we have no control. We can't invite bigger speakers and then it becomes a big event or something because it's so different and so driven by the crowd and the interests of all the attendees. Mm. And on the other hand, that makes it pretty unique in what it is delivering for the local network yeah. and the community. So that work that you're doing for the community, um, you're kind of bringing people together, forming networks. Um, how and what has that given you in terms of uh, what you're bringing forward to the table with ETS? Like what have you learned from the Nuremberg Festival that you can carry forward into? Because I know it's very local um, and it's it's sustainable and the practices that we like to talk about on this podcast, you're living and breathing on a day-to-day basis with that. Um, what have you learned from, from both running both of those businesses? There's one thing that is what the festival gave me is a deeper view and another perspective on ecosystems. Yeah. And that's, that's a very complex thing that we usually have problems with it's not something in a, let's call it, in a classical organizational principle. It's not hierarchical. It's not, it's not something you can control an ecosystem. You can mm. try to nourish it. You can try to help it to grow. And that's a principle we also have in the restaurant. Because you, as a restaurant, even if you do a lot of your own stuff, you're still part of an ecosystem of producers, of farmers, mm of uh, a fishery we're working with and you impact them not just in what you are buying you're also impacting them in what you could buy how you work with them so they can change their their methods and their practices and what mm-hmm. they're what they are farming and also how you buy it so yeah um, a restaurant usually is like the final consumer, you know, just buys the finished stuff and says, I take that, I won't take that. And I think where we are going is different. So it's more about the relationship and growing and farming and developing new tastes together. 
Okay. So even from a business perspective, so we, we as a restaurant now, we are prepaid. Yeah. So you buy your ticket for your reservation in October or November. That, of course, changes our model. our financial our model, our financial yeah. model. And it allows us to order stuff now that's still getting produced. That's awesome. Like, I love that idea of prepaying in the future. So tell me what that means. Like, Because some people might say, well, I don't really get that. Tell me what that small change of repositioning where money enters the conversation. What what does that give you um, as a restaurant owner and how does that trickle down to the other people as part of your ecosystem? Yeah, we mentioned can, ordering. Yeah, we can. Um, let's say we know how many of our, we, we, we use Mangalitsa pigs. Um, so it's a very, from a very old breed stock, that, that's more or less uh, three groups that are living near a forest around here. And there's one farmer who keeps them. For him, we are like, it's, it's more or less our pigs because there are no, there's not a relevant number of other customers. So what we can do now is to say we need four pigs next year and we can prepay that. And that yeah. changes the way he works and the way he can structure his business and keeps these pigs alive. And the, these are a dying breed. Yeah. So, do you share in the risk as well? Like what happens if yeah. there's, a, we share there's the a, risk. a disease amongst the pigs and mm -hmm. they die? We share the risk. We share the risk and, as well. Yeah. And that's a change and a big change. And the same thing happens with, uh, let's say, um, one of the things we are working with a lot is climate change. Hmm. So um, northern Bavaria, Franconia, where we are, is, is very has some very is feeling some very strong effects on climate change. We are we have a lot of vineyards, and it's getting a lot of drier, and there's more heat. And yeah. at the same time, we still have uh, snow and ice days, so a lot of pressure on the ecosystem. And there are some new plants we can bring in that have a higher uh, chance of surviving in these change, changes. But for farmers, there's a big risk. You, you're, you're starting with a new plant. You don't actually have any consumer or restaurants buying these plants. So what we okay. can do is, hey, try to farm with these plants with us together. We will buy them from you. We are in a partnership now. So what we, that's something we also want to foster, um, yeah. a, a partnership to develop for us at the end, it's new taste. Mm. It's something sustainable, locally produced. And for the farmer, it's a, it's a new way of doing business. Or let's say he wants to have a farm with an ancient breed. That's usually, that's a high risk, but we can say we will take 50% of this field next year. Okay. In that moment, his perspective is completely different. It's only know, a chance with little risk. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's really clever in, in many ways, but from the farmer's perspective, are there other customers like yourselves that work with them in that way as well? So is there potential there for conflict with um, 
other customers on his side that may want 70% and they want one of those pigs that died and what does that no. look like? <laughs> no, there's no. not. So you yeah, um, have that exclusive relationship. Yeah, and uh, he has the chance to do more so he can have a second field because he knows how to work uh, with what he's working with. So th this is a chance to develop like new opportunities. And on the other hand, you can always go and say, hey, I'm selling these uh, salads to Yets. Huh? Yeah. Uh, oh, yes, uh, and open new opportunities with other restaurants. We have yeah. no exclusivity in there. We want to help bring some sustainability and some change into the ecosystem and force and help the, the ecosystem to in a more sustainable way and also in a way where, let's say, the things that the market usually doesn't want mm -hmm. are priced in a different way and valued in a different way. So, yeah. I mean, what the market wants is things that can be packaged, that are standardized. You know? And yeah. the things we want are like the opposite of that. And if we can get give more financial security in that range for our partners, then they have a chance to develop more in that area. Yeah. So by the time it hits the plate in ETS, though, um, it's usually going to be quite different. Is that is that right? So like if you're mm -hmm. taking a, a plant that nobody wants, people may not have the same sense of value or a sense of vision and what you can potentially do with that. So you must have something happening magical in between the farm and the plate. And I'm really keen to understand that process. You know, it's, it's we, we realize the, the quality of the ingredients is obviously extremely important, if not the most important thing. But from my understanding of brief conversations with Marcus and Adam and yourself and also tasting the food from Metz and somewhat at the event, um, something is something special is brewing. And especially if you're getting to star Michelin restaurant happening, what, what are the ingredients that, um, you've helped foster and the team helped foster on a day to day basis in terms of the principles and how you operate? There are some very strong ideas that Felix, the head chef, and my, my partner uh, used to develop the culinary style of the ads. And mm. the basic principle is focusing on a local and sustainable ingredients and producers not in a very clearly defined way. So there's no 30 kilometers, 50 kilometers or 100 kilometers border. It's more about having a relationship with the people and the ecosystem you work with. And the other principle is um, looking at things differently. Um, so working with them from the beginning, not accepting yeah. pre-made stuff. Yeah. looking at the principle be behind it and what is possible. So there's an interesting um, story behind it, how the restaurant became what it is now. It's a six to seven, eight year learning process. So when they started, when they started to buy these old pig breeds, yeah. they couldn't find anybody to tell them how to work with them. 
Um, so they had to, the, the, the kitchen team had to learn everything by themselves, teach themselves, fail and fail again, <laughs> how yeah. to do their own, um, how to cut these. And what the restaurant is now doing is that we don't get any deliveries that are not raw. So what we get is the produce. We get, and what's happening is we are no longer a kitchen. We are no longer a restaurant. We are more like a, a small local artisan craft um, factory working yeah. with all these products. So we have, so one day, one day they ask themselves, couldn't we buy local sugar? Yeah, and it's an interesting question. And they, they looked at their organic sugar in the and they were and it's what wasn't local because sugar is traded in a global and a national way. So it's very hard, especially in Germany, to buy local sugar. So they looked at it, couldn't buy any. It was organic but not local. And then but in the area you have a lot of uh, sugar beets that are actually harvested. So everybody asks, well, why don't we have local sugar? And then they started to buy the beets and make right. their own sugar, make their own sugar. So and you, you have your own sugar. Yeah, we have our own sugar. So we still buy something. And now there are some producers who produce local sugar. So there's always an inspiration process going on. Yeah. And the and but you start to make your own sugar and then you get melasse and you get other uh other facts out of these beads not just sugar not just the end product and then you get suddenly you notice that there are different ways this tastes depending on how you work with it in the artisan process of making sugar out of beads Mm. And then you kind of ripen them a bit longer or you put them in the cold. And so by going a step backwards and looking yeah. at the whole process, you discover different ways of taste and different ways of working with these products. And suddenly you have a much bigger, you're not no longer working with sugar you're working with 20 different ways of producing sugar and 20 different tastes. And suddenly you can have a dessert that is only made of these beets and some other components, and but has 20 different kinds of tastes for sugar in there. And that's kind it, of... Yeah, it, it's, it is a kind of a, a mindset, so to speak, of, of how you're approaching the whole process. It's not just the process of when it hits the kitchen. It's the process yes. that the benefits that come with all of those other pieces. For people listening who um, might see themselves as designers as well, who mm -hmm. have interests in business and interests and impact and wanting to apply some of the stuff that they're interested in, one of the big blockers would be access to capital to get land, to get a restaurant and stuff. How was this problem tackled amongst yourselves at Etz? Because I know the designers and the change makers that listen to this podcast are perfect listeners who are, have got the potential there to really make situations an awful lot better by bringing these kind of sensibilities to the business world. What advice do you give to those people on how you approached the, the most common blocker 
in starting a business. It's access to capital. Access to capital is always a question of risk. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at the end, it's a question of how it's the entrepreneurial question of how you deal with risk and mm. can you minimize your risk exposure? Can you yeah. find out what the limitations is? It, I mean, that's the basic job of every consultant and every designer if he looks at business questions. Absolutely. What are the risk questions behind it? Now, doing a Michelin restaurant in itself is a very risky business. There's yeah. no question. Yeah, I, I wouldn't advise yeah. it. Um, <laughs> you heard it here. There is the soundbite for the podcast. I would not advise this. I'm sure that's not always true. No. Um, what we did is um, when we started this, so, so Felix already was head chef in another restaurant he didn't own. So we are owning okay. the ads together now. So And he developed a lot of the techniques we're using now there. So there was already the basic and the, 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 funda- the theory and how the craft was already there. What yeah. we noticed in the process is that there's a much more potential to do more products. So you have a kitchen that does their own vinegar, their own, their own soy sauce, their own um flavors and ferments things for one year so we have an we have 30 uh, barrels of different um sauces fermenting for one year in the kitchen oh my god uh, so you you have to come by in a test kitchen it's not a test kitchen anymore it's 600 square meters of uh fermentation products ripening um drying and so so this is more like a very big lab in factory mm. and in in this we saw when we started the ads we just saw the opportunity to can we sell some of this stuff <laughs> so yeah because a michelin restaurant is an attention getter and something that builds the brand and the visibility if we get the experience right and uh, can communicate what we are actually doing. And so we are just building an e-commerce business out of it. Not to actually become a big e-commerce business because that's not the goal in this case, but just to make it more stable and do you risk it at Absolutely. the same time. So balance out the, the business model. Yeah. One of the things that I want to ask you about, you said it's about six or eight years old, Ets, is it? The technique and the craft. So we started the Ets two years ago. Yeah. But you started working on it eight years ago. In a way. So Felix and the other restaurants started to shift to a more sustainable story. Mm. That was the so sign. And developed a lot of the techniques we are using now. And in the last three years, uh, we had a lot of refinement and going even deeper with a bigger garden now and our big test kitchen. That's insane. So how, how, if you've been open two years, and now you're telling me you're a two-star Michelin restaurant, we just people like myself. All we know that about the Michelin star process is from looking at Netflix and looking <laughs> at restaurant documentaries. And mm-hmm. recently, The Bear. If anyone has listened, watched oh, The yeah. Bear on Apple. Great TV, series. Great, um, great. It's absolutely it's it's a killer oh. episode, or killer series. So, um, the quality and the dedication that goes into that. If you're telling me you got a two star Michelin restaurant after two years, mm-hmm. what was that journey? How did you go about it? Did you just send them an email saying, hey, lads, uh, I'll, I'll give you some money? Or <laughs> that's a joke. No. Like, don't. no they, they, knew, the they knew Felix and the team and they said there's okay. something new going on and then they're coming. 
it was still quite a struggle because we had a pop-up restaurant for the first year because our final location wasn't there yet. So, so <laughs> I'm pouring a coffee here, folks. Go on ahead. <laughs> so, so talking about de-risking, uh, we weren't very good at that. Um, yeah. So uh, we had a pop-up location first and an old butchery in northern Nuremberg that we used as a test kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually where we found the name. Okay. Um, so it was Metzgerei, it's a butcher in ah. Germany. And Etz is also the Franconian word for now. Ah. And it's used very colloquially in like, can you do that now? Or no, I don't know. So it's a very local word and it was in the sign already included. Okay. So we took it from there. So you saved a couple of thousands on the sign. <laughs> is what you're telling me? You, you yeah, that was you, just just like, give me the tipex. <laughs> and more uh, tipex. It's a big sign. Um, so, so we were in the pop up first, and so we had, and we got actually we got two stars for the menu in the pop up already, which makes us the only two star catering. Uh, that has ever existed because we had to prepare the menu in the old butchery and yeah. drive over to the pop-up location, which was more like a show kitchen, yeah. and drive back after the service. Yeah. And next day again and again and again. So, uh, And after some months, the team and Felix said, I could do this anywhere now. So we are like there for some months. We had the only two-star catering service in the world. <laughs> um, it's um, it's a remarkable story. One of the bits that I want to chat to you a little bit more around. Um, they'll probably be listening, and if we don't mention the story of um, the prototype and how you got mm-hmm. to this point, because when you look at the photos, and I haven't have not been at Etz, the restaurant itself. Although I just want to say publicly, Florian invited me and my wife to uh, Nuremberg and my entire family uh, and my, all my friends and all the listeners to this restaurant for free, folks. Disclaimer, it was just me and my wife. But um, when you look at this, there's uh, I want to talk about the process of the selection of the lighting. It's something that mm-hmm. really struck me instantly. It seems to be very um, carefully selected. Okay, which is no surprise because if anyone has been listening to this episode for the last half an hour or so, everything seems to be well thought out and very structured. But the line of visibility for anyone who's interested in blueprints and the line of interaction, I guess, as well, is is kind of very transparent. Mm-hmm. Walk me through um, how you design the experience because you are yeah. speaking to a designer and a restaurateur and an entrepreneur bringing these these kind of ingredients hey these ingredients together has yeah. lend itself to this wonderful culinary experience um so walk me through what that process was like and and did uh felix and because the name of the head chef what was felix's take on this on mm-hmm. using the Nuremberg studio to, to prototype the layout. <laughs> it's a very interesting thing because the, the prototype at the end was a prototype where we learned a lot hmm. and a lot that we couldn't use. 
So when we started, we had some general ideas from the last restaurant and of course from the risk. And I think cafes and restaurants are always appealing for a designer because we have so much interaction with it. We yeah. see it and we see the process and that makes it, even if you're not a foodie, very appealing because you're thinking about the process, you're watching it and you think, how can you optimize it? And what's going wrong here? Yeah. <laughs> so, and... And the other side is it's a very experience-driven process where all touch points matter in a way. And it's not, it's not even the marketing touch point that matters because if, even if you get the marketing right, but the experience sucks, <laughs> you're not going to come back. Expectancy, you yeah. talk about the pre and the service and the post-service experience. Yeah. And it's not something where you can just sell it and then have a running business. It's not yeah. a kick. It's not a weird Kickstarter gizmo that you sell for one time. Yeah. Um, so so that all came. These experiences. We, we actually collected these experiences, and we actually looked at the 100 top restaurants in the world, how they were structured, how the experience for the guest differed. Hmm. So, how did you do that? Um, how we went to no. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was going to say, please tell me you got budget from somewhere to fly around the world. No, up under press. Of course, you're a foodie and you like that area, so you've been into five or ten of them. Yeah. Um, but um, the others we collected from friends, from others who were there. And yeah. what the experience was. I actually looked at every photo I could find in every description of the process. So we yeah. did a lot of desk research, Instagram. so to speak, and really try to structure the journey. What's the, how do the people find out of the restaurant? What's the first moment when they arrive? Mm -hmm. And then it was very easy to see where restaurants have an exceptional experience in one of those journey moments. So mm -hmm. you have something like, the Cokes on the Faroe Islands. Uh, it's a very small uh, Nordic cuisine restaurant, and they have an exceptional experience when it's when your evening starts because you drive somewhere out on the Faroe Island, and then they get you from a shed with Land Rovers and drive you to the restaurant, and so. Your experience starts like several hundred meters before you arrive yeah. at the restaurant. So you have these different levels of experience. And then you have the classic restaurants where you just walk into the door and somebody stops you and say, hey, who are, who are you? Which is not cool. <laughs> and so so we try to look at all these experience levels. You have something like the Noma in uh, Copenhagen where you walk through the garden and mm. are... Uh, get some tea first in the greenhouses and to yeah. arrive. And we were interested in this. This is the Adam wrote a great article about the boom, 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 wow, boom, yeah. which is you know the dramatic arc piece within journey maps, and you can include them in blueprints, I guess, if you wanted. But really, that whole kind of big wow moment at the start. Um, how, how are you tackling that? Adats, like what is is there a boom at the start? Yeah, and that's an interesting. We actually we didn't use Adams, uh, but we actually thought very much about these boom moments. And one thing we noticed in the old restaurant and 
interestingly, in the feedback from the pop-up. So the pop-up for right. us was also a prototype. Yeah. So we had several levels of prototype. We had the cardboard prototype, which was very interesting because the cardboard prototype for us was, um, I'm going to try to go into these uh, prototypes for a moment because I think that's important to understand where we got our data from and for the final design. Yeah. So we had the old restaurant where Felix was the head chef. So the cuisine and the approach to sustainable cuisine was already on a, on a top level there. And, but the experience for the guests was very classic. So you mm. sit on a table and you see nothing from the kitchen and you have a very nice dinner and you leave. And, the, and what I noticed when I talked to guests who were there is that they didn't understand what was happening. So even if the kitchen team came out and talked to them, uh, they left and they didn't understand that these animals were bought whole and we worked with these farmers to raise these animals and we uh, dry them and work with them with uh, that meat for one year or that everything they had on their plate was done by the team themselves. Mm. Nothing was bought. They didn't understand that. And that made the experience completely different. Yeah. Because it's a very nice, interesting tasting plate, but you don't see the story behind it. So one thing we took out of the old restaurants, we have to show the story in an emotional way. They have to feel it. We need to make the process more visible and open the kitchen up. So that was the decision for an open kitchen. So how do you explain the narrative of the journey? Um, obviously, you're busy enough as it is, and they can't plonk you at the table for 20 minutes at every sitting and kind of go, <clears throat> we actually work with the farmer for a year. <laughs> so, so what we do now and what we uh, planned now and where the experience is going now is that the evening starts with a tea in the test kitchen. Okay. So the guests come in on a, on, a, on a big table. On the table is the menu, are some of the produce we use in the menu of the season. Because yeah. We have these micro seasons and the menu changes every week, depending on, on what nature gives us, which is very stressful. Um, the, um, the, but you have this welcome in the test kitchen where one of the chefs explains something about some produce we're using at this moment about the barrels behind you about the tastes that are developing here and the way we work so mm -hmm. your experience actually starts with 20 minutes of a deep dive into the test kitchen and but from an experience level it's not like somebody explains something it's a very emotional moment you're yeah. behind yeah there, there are a lot of restaurants who talk about about how transparent they are and it's yeah. a lot of show Let's be honest about it. You can yeah, yeah. go to the restaurant I just mentioned, the Noma, and they say, this is our greenhouse with herbs. And you walk into the greenhouse and it's like 12 square meters. And you think like you have how many hundred guests per week? Yeah. <laughs> so, and the um, it's a beautiful greenhouse. I have nothing against this greenhouse, but you know. Does it really produce enough for yeah. thousands and thousands and thousands of guests? There's another restaurant, and I don't want to call names, that says, oh, Please we do. are <laughs> yeah, Silo in London. 
Okay. Yeah, a brilliant restaurant, and I really want to go there. But they talk a lot about how they are zero waste restaurant and use the bottles from uh, the wine bottles to yeah. produce cutlery and everything else and plates. Now, that's a very nice idea. I know how many bottles of uh, wine we sell per week. <laughs> so, And since they don't have a side business selling plates, I very much doubt. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, it, it pays to be a bit cynical about some of these things, folks. Don't just accept the information that it's... We had the story in the US where um, on the island near Seattle where the restaurant was telling the story about um, that they produce everything on the island. And it's a bit mm -hmm. like the, the movie. Um, it's not possible that they produce everything on the island because the island is too small. So, yeah. so th that makes no sense. Huh? Yeah. So and by, by, by starting in the test kitchen, we give people a feeling of honesty and transparency mm. that you usually don't have because you are actually, actually looking at our storage areas. You're actually looking at everything we have in there. Mm. And so, so you're, so you're that, really in the open. It's... We're totally transparent in that moment. And on the other hand, you have so many flavors in the room. And these are not the refined flavors you will have later. The, this is the rough density, the yeah. umami you're smelling, the, the richness of the fermentation process in that room. And you get a, a tea. Yeah. And you just arrive in that moment. And I that's remember, the first bang. I remember we stayed... And this is not a flex, by the way, because you've far and away, you know, got so many more culinary experiences. But on our honeymoon, we got married in Italy um, 10 years ago, folks, myself, and my wife. And Congratulations. <laughs> it's, it's in a couple of months. But we stayed at a place called Monastero Santa Rosa in, uh, in near Positano. And when we went in, um I realized I'd left my passport in the previous hotel in Sorrento. And I was like freaking out. I was like, because we were flying back to Australia in a few in a few days after that. And they're like, sir, please don't worry about it. We'll we'll find that and bring it, bring it to you. And I'm like, hmm? What? How are you gonna do that? You don't know where the hotel was. He goes, No, we we'll find it. Don't worry. Just come to our our balcony and have some tea that we freshly picked from your garden. And I'm like, what? So I was so Irish. I was literally like that moment of like giving me tea in my hand, relaxing me. And um, it was a, it was a first boom experience that I've ever had in my life in terms of like they designed this. They didn't want me mm -hmm. f freaking out about my passport. And they said, just just meet us back here in three hours. We'll have it for you. And sure enough, they sent a car to get it and they came back with my passport. Like, you know, but it's that level of detail yeah. that they really considered the tea in the hand looking at the Mediterranean to calm your mind like you know so it's really really interesting can i ask you a, a question and feel free to to say mm -hmm. say no to this one but what's been the biggest failure and what have you learned from it in um opening ets and i know you're instantly whenever i say this to some guests they're like no i'm gonna have to show some vulnerability what's been because for me you know it sounds like everything is working and everything is working to plan. And you know, and I know from a design perspective, the real lesson is in the failure. So if you can tell me something around this whole experience, primarily around ETS, in terms of what that failure was and what did you learn from it? 
agreeing to this podcast. Uh, no, no, no. But it's really, the thing is, the way the kitchen team works is something yeah. that inspires me in my work every day. Hmm. Because they work with a, a way of limitation. Yeah. They, they define the way and the limitations of the work before they start working. Tell me, so, tell me more about this. Tell yeah. me more about so, this. So Felix and the team says, no, we are going to use only local produce. Yeah, so they're locked um, They've got some restriction. They have a restriction. Then yeah. they decide we are only going to do it on our own. We are not going to have something pre-made from somebody. So we're going to do it on our own, even if we don't know how. Yeah. So, and then we are going to learn that. And then we are going to try to be as sustainable as we can. And then you, we just talked about the work environment, a bit of Michelin restaurant, how, how it is. Mm -hmm. And there are, I mean, there are a lot of bad stories out there. Yeah. And, and then we, we decided we want to be a workplace where people feel included, where they want to work. You know, yeah. where that's a different way of working at that level. And that's why we have only three evenings open. Okay. Yeah. And then we have one and a half days where we prepare everything and people are in the kitchen. And so, so this is, this changed our way, but this also changed the business perspective. Yeah. And so my job in a way is to match the experience and these core ideas with a business perspective and make it work. Mm. Now we, and, and this, these principles and working from these principles and still managing to work from these principles is something that inspires me every, every week. So mm. I'm sitting in there and they have to design a new menu for the next week because the blue flowers uh, are, are gone. I can't collect any more uh, blue flowers. So what are we going to do? Are we going to do, use the white flowers? Flowers, But the white flowers have a different taste. So we have to change this plate for the next week slightly. And we okay. have to do this all on a level of two star, of a, of a two star Michelin restaurant because one bush of white flowers is no longer available. And that's something that happens every week, working in designing plates and experiences every week in the limitations that are there and still make them exceptional every week. So I'm having a hard time talking about failures because what I learned from them is to accept the process. Yeah. And just our e-commerce launch just now was a bit weird. And we had a, the box was too big and the price too high and, should so have gone. Adapting. Huh? You're always adapting. And it sounds I'm to me adapting. Like micro yeah. failures. Absolutely. So all it's all the time. Absolutely. Every day. So we had so we adapt and we change it. And that's something I'm really learning from the team to accept, mm. to accept these irregularities. These and these are just part of the flow. And these, this exceptional quality you get is by learning, adapting, learning, adapting. Yeah. And so, so I'm having a hard time with the term failure now because 
the experience we have now is very much formed by these different prototypes, by the pop-up mm. restaurant where we learned a yeah. lot about lighting, about the emotional experience over an evening, over a real service. But yeah. we knew it was just for a time and it was a prototype. So we actually logged experiences and what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. And the cardboard prototype was for, at first, only for the butchery, this very small space. And we didn't know, can we fit a restaurant in there? And we couldn't. <laughs> but what we learned when doing the cardboard real size prototype, so we built a complete kitchen, uh, we built the seatings for everybody. And what we learned is about the relationship between the chefs in an open kitchen and the people sitting on the other side. And we learned how hate and hmm. if if the seating is a bit lower and everything changes the atmosphere and the emotional experience from of hierarchy of openness of the relationship between the chefs and the and the guests completely so the these prototypes didn't actually give us what we wanted we just wanted an easy answer how the restaurant should look like yeah but they gave us insights they gave us insights in how should how open should be the kitchen? How can be the how can we design the relationship between the chefs and the guests? How can we um, improve the experience? And so all of these different aspects came into the final design. And then we gave it to a very good architect interior designer and said, look, this is what we learned. Can you can you design this? So we didn't go in there and try to be the interior designer because honestly, I'm not. <laughs> so, and Felix is not. But we, we took all our insights to him and said, this is what we want from you. Can you design the experience in this way? And these are the limitations we see from the experience and from the prototypes. And that's actually what he did then. And then we had a, a very strict time frame Florian because we there. had to leave the pop-up. And... Florian. But the experience with the prototypes and the and the Florian. planning process gave him a very clear view. And I think you can see that in the restaurant and the lighting and everything else. Build a very clear briefing and a very clear setting to work on. As a designer, it definitely influenced how we work <clears> on that. It's not a 3D design space. It's actually a space designed on service design and prototyping um, on based on prototypes and service design it's not something built in a 3d program so it looks nice it's built for so the experience for every guest is exceptional and every guest has an exceptional perspective and every guest feels the openness of the space and the non-hierarchy to the chefs Mm. So, and that's actually the feedback we get for the space and how we work now. So even up to Google reviews, we get, it feels so open and you feel like you are part of something in a space yeah. and that's unique. So if, Can I ask so if your service designer wants to take up the restaurant button and run with it, go for it and prototype it and yeah, really go absolutely. for it to develop that experience and focus on that and not on the 3D program, uh, good-looking restaurant coffee experience. 
Can I ask you a question before we wrap up? How do you manage your time? Okay, because I know you're a dad. You've got a Nuremberg Digital Festival, teaming with AI, ETS. And these are the ones that I know about. And I'm sure there's other ones there as well. Um, what's your role in ETS? And do you have a set day a week or something? Or is it just a case of like your phone blows up when you wake up in the morning? Or how are you managing this? No, it'll have an impact. I try to. It'll catch no. up with you. I, I try actually to build a, I'm str still struggling with it. I think it would be dishonest to say. I have the perfect system. I, you know, like like a weird LinkedIn post. I, I wake up and then I... Yeah. <laughs> so, I have my coffee and meditate for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right now, you know, I'm very healthy. <laughs> no one has a journal. So no. Only that Instagram post yeah. that keeps on getting served to me. Yeah, it's like I always try this for another two days every year. Um, the... No, I, I try to, and that's something I learned over the last years. As a designer, um, I need the different experiences actually for myself so my head works. So I try actually to change places a lot. Mm -hmm. So I have the consultancy office where I'm currently in. Yeah where I'm on two days a week and I'm one day a week I work from the restaurant, even if I do some consultancy business. Um, that gives me a totally different perspective again. And one day a week I try to work from Munich or Berlin um, with our other partners there or clients. So, of course, this is just like an idealized week. <laughs> so it fails in 50% of all cases at least. Um, but... I try to change places and give places a meaning by working on something specific at that place. Okay. I don't know if this is something that can be adapted to other people, but I noticed that it helps me focus, feel and get differently inspired by specific things. And you all know how you have good days in a week and bad days in a week. Yeah. And Mondays are usually not the best days in the week, yeah. at least for me personally. <laughs> um, the, so uh, I'm trying to solve that by being in Berlin or Munich. I'm on my way and meeting a lot of people, and that gives me a lot of energy. And then I work on more consultancy staff on Tuesday, and on Wednesday I'm in the restaurant. And so my overall impact over a week is different. Okay. So a lot of it's being physically present and connected yeah. to the work at a deeper level versus and to the people yeah. sit in the same space to do a podcast, to do a co coaching session. It, yeah, yeah. That, that would make sense. And it would be ideal to be able to meet people where they're at as, as often as possible. Um, but you, you segregate and you sort of segment your time uh, in a very intentional way to to be present, I guess. That's what I'm hearing. That's what I'm trying. Yeah, that's what you're trying. Of course, it's it often fails, but let's say it this way. On weeks when it works, I feel brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so, at least I know where what I'm struggling for. <laughs> yeah. If people can accept the whole kind of 
I'm only here for one day. And then if you need me again, I'm here next week. That's great. But it tends to be that whole kind of bleeding nature. Of, of course, do. of course. Sorry. And then you get a call and then you have something else going on. And, um, and I'm really struggling with it sometimes. And the other part is having partners you can trust. Yeah. So here in the consultancy, I work with exceptional people where I have a lot of trust who um, my partner in the restaurant, Felix, is, in my personal opinion, the most exceptional chef um, you can yeah. meet anywhere. Definitely in Germany, probably one of the most exceptional chefs internationally. He's a, he has values, is like a microbiologist and a chef all in one person. This is a very rare combination. Yeah. Um, and the, you have these people and then you have to trust these people. You can't do it alone. I have one role and that's as the creative head, the strategic head and the experience head, so to speak. Mm. And But I can't design every detail of the experience. I need to work with others, leave room and trust their impact. A lot of what I'm how I'm working now is actually inspired by working with the restaurant team. Mm -hmm. Their appreciation of there's a farmer and it does differently. Why do you do things differently? Is there something we can learn from that for the way we work with your produce? Yeah. This this openness for the ecosystem. Yeah. This is really something I'm learning a lot. Much more than I thought. I thought I just living the foodie dream and building the restaurant of my dreams, but it changed the way I work. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it it sounds it. Um, Florian, I've thoroughly enjoyed peeking inside your brain for 45, 50 minutes. Um, I'm going to put a link to obviously the Ed's restaurant or Ed's restaurant uh, into the show notes of this episode, folks. Um, Whenever I get back to Nuremberg, um, I will accept that offer. Yeah. Trust me, um, I will. And I'd love to see how uh, we can promote it in any shape or form because the, the level of detail, both ethically um, and sustainably, is just mind-blowing. And I remember I remember Marcus and Adam telling me about you, like maybe about a year ago, about this restaurant and stuff, how it's amazing. Um, so I'm excited to get to it. If people want to reach out and um, ask questions to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Because I know you've got another business that we didn't even speak about, user-centered strategy. I think it's called Nuremberg. What's it called? Yeah, it's called Nuremberg Digital Festival. So Nuremberg yeah, they, I'm easy to Google just Florian Bailey and send me a Twitter DM <laughs> or something else. You will easily find me on LinkedIn or somewhere else. On LinkedIn, Absolutely. Florian, thank you so much for sharing your expertise uh, with the audience. Totally enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And there you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more, why not visit thisishcd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there. Thanks again for listening.